Good morning. Isn't it awesome that we get to come together and, and worship together as God's people? I love it. Um, yeah, you know, when, when one of us is hurting, we're all hurting. And so, um, and, uh, you know, Pastor Clint is one of my very closest friends. Uh, I, I uh, aside from my own wife and kids, there are very few people that I love as much as I care for him. So, uh, before we get started, let me just uh, lift uh, Clint and his family. Uh, Father God, we just want to lift the clouds up to you and uh, be bringing them comfort and peace in this time. Lord, the extended family, uh, uh, that, uh, that Father, you would um, just bring them peace, comfort, uh, and even joy in this time of grief. Uh, Lord, we just thank you that we have uh, such a gift in Ari who is able to come in and fill in at the last minute and, uh, and just do such a wonderful job to draw us into uh, your throne room to worship you. And so God, I just, uh, once again, we lift the clocks up to you, bring them peace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Yeah, I got that call last night, and uh, it was it was actually a little bit late. It was like probably close to six, I think, and uh, Ari was able to just take that and turn it around and make it work. So, thank you, Ari. Awesome, good work. All right, Luke chapter four. We're going to start in verse one, and we're going to talk about the devil. So, that, that's that's how today's going. Um, here we go. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Jesus answered him and said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve, own, serve him only, or you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Uh, verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so God, uh, our good and gracious God, we lay ourselves before you this morning. Uh, Lord, we know that there is an enemy who seeks to keep us from unity with one another and from communion with you. We know that in you we have the strength to overcome the enemy. But we so often succumb to his wicked devices. For that we repent. Forgive us of our sins, both those in which we have been deceived and those in which we have brought on ourselves. 
We pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning. Teach us to obey. Teach us to live in your word that the devil might flee from us. Help us to understand what you have to teach us this morning. God, we invite your Holy Spirit to inhabit this place and our hearts as we worship you by the reading and studying of your holy scriptures. We give this time over to you and the scriptures that you have given us in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. It was uh, about 1527, about 20 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. He penned the words to the most powerful Christian songs of all time. One of the most powerful Christian songs of all time. To him, a mighty fortress is our God. Like any great praise, the words to this song are an adaptation of the Holy Scriptures themselves. Now, on this occasion, Luther was especially moved by the words of Psalm 46. I'll go ahead and read that. Verse, verses 1 through 11, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble, tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters, breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Luther recalled his great fear as a young peasant when he was caught in a horrible thunderstorm being nearly hit by a bolt of lightning. And fearing for his life, he called out to Saint Anne that if he would be spared, he would become a monk. I'm not sure if Saint Anne heard anything he had to say, but God heard his prayer. He kept his promise. He left his pursuit of law, and it was as a monk that God began to prepare Martin Luther for the greatest movement in church history since the book of Acts. As a monk, he was stalwart in his faithfulness to the Roman Catholic Church. But Luther was also a devout student. When he learned, what he learned from the church, rather, had him mortally fearful of his own sin and temptation. But as he studied the scriptures, he found hope that he could not find in Roman Catholic doctrine. He eventually earned a doctorate in philosophy. And in that time, he discovered that it isn't what you know, but about having a right and real personal relationship with Jesus Christ. By this time, the Roman Catholic Church had developed doctrines of penance and purgatory that conflicted with the biblical message that the sacrificial death of Christ was sufficient to provide complete forgiveness of sin. Martin Luther 
discovered something about God that he never understood. God is deeply merciful towards sinners. This became among the most important issues for Luther and eventually led to his excommunication and attempts by the church to have him killed. From exile, he translated the Bible into German and became the founding theologian of the Protestant Reformation. But Martin Luther was no stranger to spiritual warfare. He said that the greatest punishment that God can inflict on the wicked is leaving them in the hands of Satan. He saw that there was wickedness lurking in every corner, poised and ready to seduce us into sin. Here's a quote from him. He says, Many devils are in woods, in waters, in wilderness, and dark, pooly places, ready to hurt and prejudice people. Some are also in the thick black clouds, which cause hail, lightnings, and thunderings, and poison in the air, the pastures and grounds. And it is with that in mind that he penned the words to his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel, cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And then in another stanza he writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I love this. I love those words. So poetic, right? Friends, we are always in the midst of spiritual warfare. And it seems that war is raging within the church today greater than any time that I can recall in my life. But we have a mighty fortress who is our God, a bulwark never failing, and he loves us. And we can stand against the ploys and seduction of our ancient foe by the strength of our Savior. And so, because of our Lord Jesus, we can sing another stanza with great confidence. I'm not going to sing it, I'll just say it. You don't want to hear me sing. <laughs> don't worry, just wait. We'll get, we'll get there. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Amen. Our passage today, we see that Christ is our victory against the prince of darkness grim. And we will walk out these doors today with confidence that the war is already won. Last week we read about the baptism of Jesus and that the Holy Spirit came upon him in bodily form like a dove. And now we see Satan make an attempt to trip up the Son of God. Now he been pretty successful at getting humans to sin from the days of Adam and Eve in the garden, but stumbling the second person of the Trinity would be the big game. That's like the Lombardi trophy of sins. You can't beat that, right? 
So let, let's, go, let's, let's go into that in Luke 4. And you'll keep your finger in Luke 4 the rest of the morning here. Uh, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And they, when they were ended, he was hungry. Now this passage is puzzling on so many levels. But it's also an incredibly hopeful event on so many levels. And more uh, traditional churches and an increasing number of contemporary churches, there's a period uh, between uh, Ash Wednesday and Easter, and it's a 40-day period excluding Sunday, so it's 46 days. And in that, Christians, uh, various Christians from different traditions around the world are identifying with the sufferings of Christ in a period of repentance. Now, it's not in the Bible. It's not necessary or anything like that. But it does go back very, very far, possibly even to the apostles themselves. Um, there's mention of it early in the second century, less than 100 years after the New Testament was written. And it speaks of it as if, if it's been going on all along. And it's a fast. The reason I bring it up is because they get the 40 days from this event that we're talking about today. So it's known today as Lent. It's a fast. It eventually became a very legalistic thing in the Roman Catholic Church long before the, uh, the Protestant Reformation with some pretty extreme fasts that would be forced on people, punishments for not observing them. Um, and so certainly that is something that all Christians ought to reject. But Protestants today will often take that time as a period of fasting and they'll choose something like caffeine. And uh, that, and the idea is that when you get this craving, it would be the cue for you to pray and to think about the sufferings of Jesus and to repent of your sins. You would look really back to this very passage uh, and see his temptation, which would bring to us greater repentance. Now, we don't observe this at IBC, and a lot of that's because of the dangers of participating in any kind of ritual or rite just for the sake of being religious. We don't want to do that. And, any ritual or tradition that we participate in needs to be understood for what it means. So think about baptism, think about communion, or weddings, things like that. We make sure that the meeting is not lost in the right as we do it, right? So I don't want anybody to think I'm encouraging people to, ro to, to follow any kind of like a Roman Catholic tradition or anything like that. That's not, that's not <laughs> what we would do. But, and, and, and rightly, people can be very, very sensitive to that. So we've got to be careful with that. But if you, if you did want to try that fast during that period of time where other Christians around the world are fasting, that would be fine too. Um, I wouldn't discourage it, provided that you understood the meaning behind it. And so if you did, Ash Wednesday falls on March 2nd, if you want to try that. Anyone can do it. If you don't have to call it Lent or anything like that. But, you know, but see, any kind of fast, any fasting that you do, whether it be a long, an extended period of time from a from a simple thing or a short period of time from all food or whatever it is. See if coming to God with your appetites won't strengthen your faith and draw you closer to God. So here are some ideas if you want to do an extended fast like that. Um, brace yourselves. Television. Anybody, that would be a hard one for me. I, I, could, I like television. How about, you guys are going to hate me for this one. How about social media? Would you do social, if you, anybody, oh, we got some people going, yes, I'm going to do that, you know, um, yeah, who am I going to argue with if I, no, uh, or how about caffeine, caffeine's a good one, every time you get that headache, right, it would be, 
right? Or meat. Uh, how about for those of you that, that, that feel the liberty to uh, partake in alcohol, how about uh, that being a fast? I know plenty of people that are addicted to uh, flaming Hot Cheetos, so you could fast from those. That might be hard. Every time you walk by the aisle with those little, and you see that bright packaging, you're like, ooh, that would bite me a little bit. And you're like, okay, I'm going to pray, right? Brace yourself. This is the hardest one. This is the hardest one. Brace yourselves. How about bacon? Oh, that would be hard, wouldn't it? Could you, every time you smell it wafting through the house. I just found out that one of my sons uh, made bacon this morning while I was down here working, and it wafted through the house, and everybody could smell it, and he only made enough for himself. So that might be a sure sign of demon possession. I'm not sure, but that's, that's, how bad is that? Again, I'm not encouraging any kind of rote tradition or anything like that, but sometimes things like this can be deeply meaningful and, and, and it really can strengthen our walk with Christ. And so it has, if it has that effect, if, it, if something helps you to see the victory that we have in Christ as you look at, back at the event that we're studying today, it, it's a good thing, provided it's not a sinful thing, right? So the passage that we're looking at today has been extremely important to Christians for 2,000 years. I think it, uh, oftentimes in attempts to shed some of our traditional baggage, which we've rightly done, we might sometimes have lost something with the temptation of Jesus. This is what Kent Hughes said. He said, at his temptation, Jesus fully knew he was the son of God, but he withstood the onslaught of Satan as a real man, depriving, or rather deriving his power to resist depending on God for strength. So any fast that you do, that's, that's kind of what it's about, right? Fasting is about taking that one thing that, you know, how many of us, let's be honest, how many of us defend, depend on caffeine? Uh, let's not lie, okay? Uh, right? We have our coffee every morning. It's about taking that need and depending on Christ for strength. So whether it be food for a day or two or three, or whether it be uh, something that we have a habit of uh, for an extended period of time, we're depending on God for strength. And that's a good thing. We have to understand, too, that Jesus was 100% human as well as 100% God. So he was tempted in his humanity, Right? He felt the weight. Even though, the, even though God can't be tempted, Jesus in his humanity felt the weight and the strength of temptation the same way that we do. And he relied on the Holy Spirit to give him the strength to resist the temptation in the same way that we ought to. Not only that, but because we have Jesus who resisted temptation, we have yet that much more access to God's power to resist when we are tempted. Hebrews 2.8. 2, Hebrews 2, says this, Hebrews 2.8, for because he himself has suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. How is not not the greatest news? Here Jesus' opponent, identified as the devil, and Matthew, he's also called the tempter. The tempter, Matthew 4.3 says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones and become loaves of bread. Now, he, he has a lot of titles and a lot of names. Uh, name off a few, the devil, Satan, the Satan, the evil one, the adversary. We could go on. I love Martin Luther's titles, uh, our ancient foe, 
or the Prince of Darkness Grimm. Those are, those are powerful names, right? So Luke chapter four, verse three, it says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now there are a lot of differences between the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the temptation of our Lord here in Luke. But there are some glowing similarities. And so this morning we're going to see three of the most common ways that our ancient foe uh, uh, will tempt us. A, he appeals to our appetite. He also appeals to our ego. And he also, believe it or not, will appeal to our faith. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Listen, this never happens. You want to know what Satan never does? He never goes, hey, hey, psst, hey, you over there. Hey, Josh, let's, let's go betray God and do really bad things that aren't going to satisfy us at all and will cause eternal punishment. Like, hard pass, right? Like, uh, let me think about that. No, right? Notice what we're told in verse 2. It says that Jesus was hungry. Again, Jesus doesn't need food, but in his humanity, Jesus is hungry. Now, I don't know if you've ever been hungry after not eating for 40 days, but I get hungry after driving home from La Casita for more, for more La Casita. Hey, Denise, let's go back, right? Like, I know I, I, I hide it well with my trim physique here, but... Uh, you know, the NRSV uses the word famished. I'm famished for more La Casita. Like, and I'm guessing even that is an understatement, right? Famished. 40 days without food is crisis-level hunger. I have trouble fasting for one day. But Jesus and his humanity was deeply famished. R.C. Sproul said this, he said, Jesus may not have gotten hungry according to his divine nature because God doesn't need food, but according to his human nature, he could certainly be hungry. And here, Satan exploits Jesus' appetite. We, we have a new puppy. Um, our dog, Luigi, of 14 years, uh, died over the summer. And uh, so we went and we adopted this mutt that we didn't think was get very large, but I think she's a Rottweiler Shepherd mix. And this dog is like 50 pounds and not even nine months old, and she's so tall. She has these super long legs, and a few weeks ago, I had grilled ribeye steaks for Denise, and I think it was for Denise and I, grilled some rib a couple of ribeye steaks. And if you know anything about ribeye steaks, they are both extremely delicious and also extremely expensive. And the dog has no self-control and is really fast. So if anyone wants a dog, you know my number. <laughs> the steak was on the table. I think I went to get a drink or something like that. The steak was on the table, and she could reach the table. It was tempting, right? What was preventing her from taking my ribeye steak? Really, it was me. I exploited the dog's appetite. The only thing I could have done to exploit her appetite more would be to actually hand her the steak, right? And that's how the enemy works. He exploits the situation so that, so that it feels impossible to resist, so that we feel like we have no other choice. Notice the ploy, too. 
If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. The implication is that if he can't command the stone to become bread, he isn't the Son of God. Satan is challenging his very identity. He's saying, prove it. And Jesus could have proven it by turning the stones, the, 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 the stones to bread. So the temptation was actually greater for Jesus to turn the stones to bread than it would be for us because if we've ever been tempted to turn a stone into bread, there's no way we can actually pull that off, right? Now, I know a few of you could probably turn bread into stone. I've seen that happen before, but not the other way around, right? So here the devil is appealing to Jesus' appetite. We, have, we all have appetites, and we have appetites that would be wrong to fill, but that we could actually very easily take care of. Think about our sexual appetites. There is a right use of that within a marriage between a man and a woman. But our flesh often desires things beyond that, particularly when our needs in that area might not be, uh, be met within the context of a biblical marriage. So a healthy question to ask is, what appetites will the enemy appeal to in my life? It would be sexual gratification or addiction or pornography. Maybe it would be greed, or anger, or pride. And so how does Jesus respond to this temptation? Jesus answers him, as it is written. As it is written. He's going to the Word of God. He's going to the Scriptures, right? As it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus not only appeals to the Bible, he goes to Torah. The law of God to Israel, Deuteronomy 8.3, right? The, the first five books of the Old Testament are the books of Moses, or the books of the law, and we call that the Pentateuch. Pentateuch, it's five, five, five books, right? Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, he humbled you, this is what it says, he, and he humbled you and let your hunger, and let you hunger rather, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God provides, right? What's, what's cool is that not only did Jesus answer with Scripture, but he answered both pieces here. No, I don't need to depend on my own strength for provision. That's meekness, right? He, he has the strength, he has the ability, but he's in control of how he exercises it. Just, just because I can do something doesn't mean I should. Secondly, he's showing that he has humility, that he doesn't have to prove that he's the Son of God. Humility is hard. Have you ever noticed that? Especially for men, I think, we take great pride in our vocation, right? We, we're, we're proud of our work, we, we, and we have to let everybody know. I, I, and I'm going to be transparent with you. I struggle with that sometimes. Because when you work so hard for something like, look what I did. You guys, I'm here because God put me here, not because I did anything right. Humility's hard. I, I remember being an electrician, and I, and I rarely liked being an electrician. I, it was, but they still boasted over some of the cool jobs I got to do, like, or, or my track record with the inspections or, or, or successes that I had, whatever it might be. And when I do that, my memory conveniently excludes my failures. 
Right? Have you ever done that? But Jesus didn't need to prove himself to anyone. I think that's a sign of true spiritual maturity. And when we, when we don't feel like we have to prove ourselves, or, or, or when we're able to resist the impulse to do so, that's, that's spiritual maturity. And when we're tempted, our best defense is a good offense, right? The sword, right? God's word. If, if you know the word of God and you can use it, th that's the most powerful weapon we have in our, our arsenal, right? Psalm 119.11. Some of you know this. Some of you need to highlight it. Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we, we try to do a lot of memory work here at IBC. Uh, we do it in some of our life groups. We do it in our, our men's leadership group. Um, they do it in Awana. Remembering scripture is very important. But the most important part of memorizing scripture isn't necessarily that you can repeat a verse verbatim, but that you understand it and can apply it. Because that's how you can recall it. And... And that's what Jesus does here with the following temptation. He recalls scripture. Verse 5, Luke 4, 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. For if you then will worship me, it will be yours. You know those little inspirational calendars? Um, they, like, they're like, they look like little post-it notes. You remove a page each day. Uh, I saw a picture of one uh, with, it had inspirational Bible verses on it. And on a particular day, it said, the, the Bible verse was, If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Luke 4, 7. And below it, somebody had written, Less inspirational when you find out who said it. Because that was the devil that said it, right? To Jesus. So here the devil appeals to ego. I will give you authority. That may seem like a strange statement because all authority was not his to give. But remember two things. First he was speaking to Jesus in his human form. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, had, had laid aside his sovereign divine power to live a 100% human life and relied on the Father and on the Spirit in some way while being 100% God. So he was subject to the limitations that he applied to himself. Also remember that Satan had seduced humanity and had a lot of power in this world just as he does now. We see it, right? So Satan offered to give that up if Jesus would fall down and worship him. And I got to be honest, I'm still confused as, how, as to how fate, Satan thought that he could pull that off. But he did, and he knows more than I do. The ego is a powerful thing. Every one of us battles with our ego. Pride is the, the heart of, of all sin universally, really. Proverbs 16, 18. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. I have never seen anything more destructive to a church or a pastor than pride. It often leads to things like domineering leadership, infidelity, and division. One of the biggest dangers in service to the church is a sense of self-importance. 
the, the ministry becomes about me, then I have this need to control how things go. And then the proud leader becomes hypervigilant to any threat to that control, any criticism. One of the largest, fastest growing churches in the country collapsed almost overnight just a few years ago because of one leader's ego. Imagine asking Jesus to worship you. That's pretty bold, isn't it? But guess what? I think we do it sometimes. We just are less direct. But Satan knew, here's the thing, Satan knew that getting Jesus to worship himself wouldn't really have that, the effect he was going after, right? Because Jesus should be the object of worship, right? It wouldn't have the same effect as getting us to worship ourselves. And, and it wouldn't net the results he was looking for. So the ultimate act of ego is self-worship. And it's a problem that we fall into all the time. It's a trap. It sounds right. You need to be true to yourself. Right? We hear that. You need to just learn to love yourself more. No. You don't have a problem loving yourself. I promise. You, you need to be true to God and love others. Here's how Jesus answers. Verse 8. Jesus answered him, It is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Once again, Jesus employs scripture to defend himself. And once again, he uses the law of Moses, both in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. Let's read a few verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6.13, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall, swear, uh, you shall serve him, and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. And then in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and that's in a part of the Pentateuch we call the Decalogue. Lots of big words, you don't have to remember them, but it's also... The Ten Commandments. The Decalogue. Deca means ten, right? The Ten Commandments. For Jesus to worship Satan would be a violation of his own law for humans while he's in human form. The devil, the devil he doesn't have to get us to worship him. He just needs us to get, he just needs to get us to worship ourselves, which is just as serious a violation as worshiping Satan. Worshiping yourself is just as serious a violation as worshiping Satan. I think people that, who get the closest to this are people like politicians or like rock stars or yes, like pastors. Listen, I get up here week after week to teach the greatest truth and the highest law. And the moment you don't hear me also preaching the deepest grace, you need to call me out for it. I'm in a dangerous place as a pastor where I could very easily take the authority that God exercises through the position and take it as my own. And that is a fatal mistake that sadly many pastors and elders and church leaders make. So at this point, Satan's failed to seduce Jesus in the way that he has at various times seduced every human and appeals to the core of his existence, his faith. Look at this in Luke 4, 9. He took him to Jerusalem and set him 
on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Here the devil sees that Jesus is relying on the scriptures for his strength to resist temptation, so then he employs scriptures to tempt him. It's the ultimate attempt to fight fire with fire. Listen, IBC family, we don't often understand our ancient foe. We don't give him enough credit. We often have no clue how powerful the one who opposes us is. The prince of darkness grim is really good at disguising himself as an angel of light. And he will twist things just enough to sound right. You know, don't you think you should trust God and not all those messed up church people? Look at, they don't even care about anybody. You know, look at, you know, there, we have a pandemic. You need to just stay away for a while. Church will still be there when it's all done. You don't need fellowship with other Christians. They're yucky anyway. You just need Jesus, right? Oh, those are the kind of things he says. How often, also, here's another way. How often has our excuse to help somebody been our commitment to something spiritual, right? Oh, sorry, I can't bring my truck over and help you move today because uh, prayer. Uh, you know, right? Or, you know, ah, sorry, we got a, a thing at the church men's breakfast and afterwards I'm just going to be tired, I think. Right? When I was on staff with Student Venture, we had an outing where we were, we were supposed to do some sort of like this outdoor preaching. And, and this, the group I was leading, it was a group of junior high kids, and, and we ended up spending the whole time talking to some individual people about Jesus and sharing the gospel with them. And now I, I, don't, I don't know looking back how I feel about the original assignment. We all have different callings to evangelism and ministry. But, but the director... Uh, his name is Monty Sharp, and he was my boss, and I was responsible to submit to him. And so at our debriefing, he called out my group. And he said what we did was good, but we had commissioned, be, been commissioned to do something entirely different. And this statement has stu stuck with me for the last 25 years or more of ministry. He said, sometimes the good things are the enemy of the best things. And it's been a reminder that Satan can use what is good in my life to draw me away from God. Satan knows the scriptures way better than we do. And he's a genius at misusing them. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, 11 through 12. This is, what, this is how Satan used this is how, what Satan used to try to deceive Jesus. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Listen, we have every reason to fear the devil. That is why we must fear God more. We must trust only him. If we rely on our strength and our understanding to conquer temptation, we will lose every time. We desperately need our loving God and His Word. If you really trust God, if you really trust God, right? those are words that the devil can use. Look at what he said to Eve in the garden. For God knows 
that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. This is Genesis 3, 5. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He doesn't question what God said. What he did was instill in Eve a doubt over what it means. It's happening in churches all over the world. The enemies planted a seed. Hath God really said? Why would God tell you that you can't fulfill this appetite that can't be filled any other way? Why would he want you to be miserable like that? The devil will do anything that he can to distort God's word. Here's something that R.C. Sproul said. The first rule of hermeneutics is that Scripture interprets Scripture, which means that we are not to set one portion of Scripture against another. Satan ignored that. And so here the devil uses the Psalms, and yet Jesus goes back to the law, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus answered him, Luke 4.12, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, that comes from Deuteronomy. Here in chapter 6, verse 16, it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. In all three cases, Jesus has appealed to Torah. And when Jesus prayed in the garden before his execution, this is what he said in John 17, 17. He said this, praying for his disciples, praying for us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Satan twisted God's truth. He didn't neglect it outright. Jesus used God's truth in its appropriate context and meaning to ward off some very difficult temptation. And because Jesus stood on the scriptures, his tempter departed. It says in verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Listen to what James says in James 4, 7. James 4, 7. Submit yourself... There, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The reformer Martin Butcher said, if you cleave to the word of God, Satan cannot prevail against you, but eventually will depart. But take note that the devil didn't stay away. He would eventually return at an opportune time. Listen, folks, we will be faced with temptation and even when we are successful at resisting temptation, our ancient foe is poised and ready to exploit our weaknesses and draw us into sin once more. And we will fight this until we are at the feet of Jesus. Our ancient foe is really good at using three things to draw us from God and into sin. Satan will exploit our appetites. He will exploit our egos. And he will exploit our faith. How can we prepare ourselves for this battle? How can we guard ourselves against this sort of impossible temptation? I want to read you a passage out of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now this, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. IBC family, the prince of darkness grim will keep showing up like a bad penny dressed as an angel of light to seduce you into taking your eyes off of Jesus and running headlong into sin. If you want to read a great book about this, I want to highly recommend a book called Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. You can get a copy for less than $5 on Amazon, and it's terrifying. I'm going to lead a life group uh, next year that, that's going to go through classic Christian literature, and this is most likely going to be one of the books that we will read. It's a brilliant picture of how we can be seduced by the enemy. Jesus had not forgotten this encounter in his fasting when he uh, taught his disciples to pray not long afterwards. Go to Matthew 6, if you would. This is the version of the prayer we typically read. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and actually it could a better translation might be but deliver us from the evil one because it's not speaking of the evil in the generic sense but of a very real and powerful source that seeks to destroy us but God is bigger. And God is a God of grace. So when we turn our eyes back to him, even after failing and falling for the devil's devices, he kindly looks back at us and forgives us. You see, when we fail to resist temptation, we can still conquer the devil through repentance. He has no power over the repentant soul. Romans 5, Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in, a in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. First, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, some of you are angry at somebody that Jesus loves. 
Some of us have sinned grievously in just the last day. Some of us have given into pride. Maybe some of you have given into your corrupted sexual appetites with someone you are not married to. Some of you have looked at God's word and found something better to do than to read it. All of us, all of us have given into temptation and we need to repent and take great joy in God's grace as we come to his table. See, this is a sacred feast for Christians. And if you, if you haven't crossed that line of faith, if you haven't repented of your sins and placed your trust in Christ alone, we would respectfully ask that you please respect our sacred rite of communion and do not partake. Or you could repent of your sins. Place your trust in Jesus now. And if you do... I would ask that you would please see me or one of the elders after the service so that we could pray. Josh is right here. Lance is over in the back. Um, you can see some of our other leaders. Uh, Charlie's back there. Um, Dennis is over here. There are a lot of folks over here. Bill's back there. You can certainly see any one of us, and we would love to pray for you. If you're confessing believers, if you're confessing believer. Take some time to prepare yourself through prayer and repentance. And then we're going to partake together. Remember, we have God's word and repentance to conquer our ancient foe. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you that you are our great defender. We thank you that you have uh, given us that powerful double-edged sword, your word. You've given that to us to wield in the face of our enemy. We thank you that Jesus lived with the same pressure and temptation that we have, that we might look to him as our example and our defense. God, we are sinners. And yet our ancient foe is conquered through our faith and repentance. God, grant us repentance that we might live in you filled with your spirit, and walk this earth holy, even as our Lord Jesus is holy. God, let us heap grace upon grace to our brothers and sisters, as you have given us grace. And let our grace accelerate without hindrance that we might be like Jesus. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive this sacred feast before us, You've given grace that never ends. And it is by your grace and your mercy that the blood of Jesus was poured out on that horrible, wretched, beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we, as we prepare to receive this holy meal. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.
if you would just a little chalice, if you kind of turn it upside down there, there's a piece of bread in there. You can lift the cover there and pull the bread out. 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. You can also remove the top. Be careful because it will spill and stain. You can remove the top off the juice here. He continues, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he continues, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Lord... You are our great conqueror. Lord, thank you that you have poured out your blood for grace and that we can trust you and your word to defend us from the enemy, that you are a mighty fortress. And we cry out, come Lord Jesus. We, we await your holy presence and long to serve with humility and gratitude on your terms in your kingdom for the rest of eternity. We offer ourselves over to you as uh, living sacrifices of praise. We enter now this week and our mission field in grace in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.